Okay, we have been studying uh, a good portion of the Gospel of John over the last couple of months, and we've been in the middle of a series on the I Am statements in John, where Jesus describes not only who He is, uh, but also identifies Himself with the Father. I am, meaning I am the one and only God who created all things. And we are in a passage now, kind of toward the end of that, that I think is so helpful for us in being able to define who we are. Where do we place our hope and our trust and our belief? And Jesus is calling us to that today. So if you will join me in John chapter 14. I'll start in verse 1 and we'll read the first 14 verses together. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way, where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to be with the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that, uh, Lord Jesus, you would be our way and our truth and our life and all that we do, that we would know that, that we would live into it and out of it. Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts to come kneel before your authority today, that you would show us Jesus that we might know his love and love him more in return. We pray in his name, amen. Well, you've probably heard the phrase plenty of times, what's the problem? That's one that we throw around a lot. You go to the mechanic, there's something wrong with your car, and the mechanic says, well, what's the problem with your car? You go to the doctor, something's wrong with your body, doctor says, what's the problem? And it's interesting, oftentimes, the way that we answer that question the mechanic says, what's the problem? And we'll say something like, my brakes are squeaking and making this really loud, weird noise. Or we go to the doctor, and the doctor says, what's the problem? And we say, you know, I, every time I lift my right leg, I can't feel it. And because we answer in that way, I think sometimes we get confused between symptoms and problems. Right? The squeaking, the noise that our brakes make, that's a symptom. The problem is your brake pads are all worn down and you need new brake pads. The symptom 
is that it's making this really crazy noise that's hard to deal with. The symptom is that, you know, I, I lift my leg and I can't feel it. That's the symptom. But that's not the problem. There's a problem somewhere in your body, in your circulation or whatever, that's causing you that kind of pain. And the thing is, if you respond just to the symptom rather than to the problem, you're going to end up with the wrong solution. You hear that? Whether you're at the mechanic or you're at the doctor or you're anywhere else in your life, if the response is simply to the symptom, if you misunderstand the difference between symptom and problem, then what you end up with is the wrong solution. That's how probably we ended up with the entire medical profession putting leeches on people for so long. We didn't really understand the real problems, so we were providing the wrong solution to folks. Well, that's the case in just about every area of our lives. Because that kind of pattern, that paradigm of understanding the symptom and the problem and then the solution is a paradigm that we have to put in place in all of our lives. Because it changes the way that we think about everything. Jesus, I think, actually lays out that pattern for us here in John 14. And so what we're going to look at today is the symptoms that are present there in this passage, the problem, really, that's under the surface, and then the solution that Jesus provides because it helps us to keep from offering the wrong solutions when we misdiagnose the problem. Okay? So let's look at that quickly this morning. Let's look at this passage. We have some symptoms showing up right at the very beginning of our passage. Jesus comes out and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is recognizing that there are some symptoms going on, that they are troubled, that there is anxiety, that there is some sort of pain going on. What would that be that would be so troubling to everybody? Well, actually, it's all throughout the previous chapter. If you actually have a Bible in front of us, you can look, and in verse 21 of chapter 13, Jesus says, one of you is about to betray me. That's a real problem. One of Jesus' disciples, the people closest to him, are about to betray him. And then we keep reading on, and Jesus says in verse 31 that, uh, that he is actually about to be gone. In a little while, children, I'm not going to be with you. Jesus is talking about his death. He's been saying this over and over. They haven't really gotten it. And here, finally, this last time, he's saying it again. I'm not going to be here forever. So we have a, a pending betrayal, and then we have Jesus' pending departure, his death. And then right here at the end of chapter 13, in verse 36, Jesus says that Peter is going to deny him. So we have one of Jesus' inner circle closest to him that is going to deny that he even knows Jesus. So all we, in, in one chapter, we get, we get the fact that there's a pending betrayal by one of his disciples, that there is pending uh, you know, death on Jesus himself, and that there's going to be a pending denial from, from Peter. There's a lot to be troubled about. There are a lot of symptoms kind of cropping up here. But that's not the problem. And the problem here in this passage is actually nowhere stated explicitly but it's lying under the surface throughout the whole thing. Just listen to some of these things that I read here. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, or Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Do you hear what's underneath that? 
No one comes to the Father except for me. That actually means that no one actually has come to the Father. There's something wrong. There's division. There's brokenness. There's disunity. If we all were in perfect union with the Father, Jesus wouldn't have said that. If we all were able to see clearly who God was, then Philip wouldn't have said, Lord, show us the Father. But Jesus is, is uncovering you know, the real problem that's going on here. And that's that human beings are alienated from their creator by their sin. Is that our hearts are broken such that we cannot be in the relationship with the one person that we need to be in relationship with most. And that is the one who has created us and created the world. And because of our actions, because of the sickness of our hearts, because our motivations are twisted, because sin has infiltrated all that we do, there is a brokenness between God and man. And Jesus is saying, there's the problem that needs to be fixed. Now let's pause for just a second, right? Because remember, if we had gotten this wrong, if the problem was the symptom, then what Jesus would have said was, okay, let's kind of start out on this anti-Judas campaign. Let's start out, you know, by prepping Peter, really, for to be able to battle kind of his doubt. Let's talk about those things, and let's set out this program of social and cultural change and behavior modification so that we can fix all those issues. But that's not what Jesus said, because that's the wrong problem. And so Jesus gives us the solution, not to the symptoms, but to the problem. And his solution is... Believe in me. Amazing how simple that is, isn't it? How simple to say, how difficult to do. Jesus says the solution to the cultural, the societal, the personal, the relational problems that you see, the brokenness that you see in the world. When you open up your eyes to the world outside you and you see the symptoms going on, what Jesus says is the solution is found in me. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Let's just look at those a little bit more closely. Jesus says, I am the way, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is proclaiming very clearly here that he is the exclusive way that we find that reunification again, that we're made right with God. And I love having Thomas here. Thomas is that guy, you know how you, the friend, there's always that person in the room who says the thing that everybody else is thinking. Everybody's thinking this. It's all in, every, in, in somebody's head. And there's that one guy who says, hey, what about this? That's Thomas. He's the one who always says what everybody's thinking. And I love how he says it. He says, Jesus, if we don't know where you're going, how in the world could we know the way to get there? If I said, meet me tomorrow, you'll know where to go. You would say, no, I don't know where we're meeting. So how would I know the way to get to where we're meeting if I don't even know where we're meeting? And Jesus responds in incredible fashion by saying, the way is not an it, it's a person. I am the way. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says that the path is not a thing. It's not a program. It's not a list. It's not a set out program of rules, it's a person. Jesus says, I am the way. And there is no way to the Father except through me. 
Martin Luther said, I don't know where God is taking me, but well do I know my guide. I love that phrase. I don't know the destination, but I know the guide. Jesus takes him one step further here. He's not only the guide, he is the way. He is both the guide and the path there. Then he goes on to say, I am the truth. This may be a strange concept to some of us because we think about truth as, as, as a concept, right? And Jesus is saying, okay, truth is no longer a concept. It's a person. Jesus is the embodiment of this concept that we have as truth. And I think it goes even deeper than the way that we oftentimes think about truth as the transcendent thing, right? Here's the transcendent truth. There's one thing that's right. There's one thing that's wrong. There is something that lasts forever. That's true. But Jesus is, I think, also even saying something else. If you look back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we actually hear John saying something like this earlier. When Jesus shows up on the scene, John tells us that he is full of grace and truth. That Jesus is full of grace and truth. Many commentators think that John is actually drawing on the Old Testament imagery and the Old Testament word that's so powerful in Hebrew, the word hesed, that means God's covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness, his promising himself to his people in love that will last forever. It is faithful and it is loving and it is kind. And Jesus so is saying here, not only is he truth in the way of transcendent true, but, but he is true in the way that you want your spouse to be true. He is faithful and true. And so what we have wrapped up in all of this statement is Jesus as the embodiment of truth and its transcendence and the embodiment of truth in its covenant faithfulness. He is all of that together. And then he goes on to say that he is the life. He had just told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. So he is clearly talking about the place he is preparing for them after death. And so Jesus being the life means that he is the way that we have eternal life with him forever in union with the Father. But he's also talking about the life we have now. Is that Jesus is the way that we find life even amidst the death of this world. Because it comes, doesn't it? The little deaths that kind of come in disappointments, in conflict, in, in difficulty, in the loss of hope, in pain, those little deaths where we are also wanting, we're always wanting, where do we find life? How do we, how do we bounce back from that? And Jesus is saying right there, it's in me that you find life, not only everlasting, but now, every day, I am the life for you. And so isn't this beautiful that Jesus is saying, I am the way there, and I am the truth that will lead you on that way, and I am the life that actually gives you the power to follow me in that truth in that way. Jesus is saying all of that together. I love how one commentator put it. He said, you know, the East is always looking for the way, the Tao. And the West has always been looking for the truth, Veritas. And all of the world has always been looking for life. And here's Jesus saying, you'll find it all in me in one. The symptoms are there. We can look around and we can find them. There's anxiety, there's trouble, there's pain. But the problem lies much deeper and the solution 
is much bigger. So how does that play out in our lives? Let's do a little bit of application. Well, here's the thing, is that very oftentimes in our lives, what trips us up are not the really big mistakes, they're the small ones. What trips us up isn't oftentimes, you know, misdiagnosing something huge, my brakes are squealing, therefore my transmission must be going out. What trips us up are actually the little things that we misdiagnose, aren't they? I want you to imagine you're, you're on a sailboat, okay? For some of you, this won't be hard. You, you sail. Uh, for people like me, it takes a lot of imagining. So imagine you're, you're on a sailboat, and then imagine it's, it's not like a little sailboat on a lake. It's a big sailboat, big open waters. You can't see land anywhere. And let's just kick it up a notch and just imagine we're pirates, okay? We're on a pirate ship, all right? And we are cruising in the ocean in the Caribbean maybe somewhere, on our pirate ship, and we are headed to find the lost treasure. And we have our course set on Treasure Island. There's that island that we know. There's buried treasure there. And so we're dreaming about these gold coins and rubies and diamonds and these amazing things that we're going to go find and they're going to change everybody's life. And so we've set our course to go to that island. But if we are many, many miles away, what happens if our calculations are just a little bit off, just, just a couple of degrees? Well, if we don't know it, and we keep sailing, even to be just a few degrees off could land us in the very wrong spot, couldn't it? So let's say we land, and we land in a beautiful island, and it's got those great palm trees, and, and it looks amazing. It looks a lot like, you know, the treasure island, but it's actually 100 miles away from the island where our treasure is buried. Well, we may land in a nice pretty spot, but it's not gonna give us what we need, is it? The treasure is not there. I think the same thing can happen for us when we just slightly manipulate our diagnosis, when we slightly get things wrong and confuse the symptom for the problem, we can land with such a completely different solution. Let me give three areas of application here. One's personal, one's parenting, and one's political. And then we'll, we'll finish with that. Here's a personal illustration of this. When I grew up, I would say I grew up knowing the Lord. I grew up with knowing His love for me, but I had a very thin understanding of what Christianity was. And here was my conception of Christianity. God loves me, and He wants me to be good. Anybody resonate with that? Maybe grow up with that idea of Christianity? God loves me, and he wants me to be good. Well, here's the thing. If God loves me and he wants me to be good, there's nothing that's inherently wrong about that statement. It's just missing a lot of statements with it. And so if my only understanding is that God loves me and he wants me to be good, then I can kind of mess that up pretty bad. Because I can look around my life and I can see the symptoms, and the symptoms are, I'm not all that good. Right? I'm not the person that I want to be. I'm not the person that I think I should be. So if God loves me and he wants me to be good, then it can very, be very easy for me to draw the lines the opposite way. Maybe God loves me because I'm good. Maybe God loves me only when I'm good. Maybe God loves me when I perform better. And so if I'm looking at the symptoms in my life that say I don't perform the way that I should, I can draw the wrong solution to be, well, maybe I should just do better so that God will love me more. 
But of course, that is not the good news of the gospel, is it? Because the real problem in my life is that I'm broken by sin. And I need something more than I can do to make me right with God. I need Jesus to come and fix my heart through his atoning death and his life, his resurrection life on my behalf. I need something much bigger than behavior modification. And if I misrepresent, if I, if I mistake the symptom for the problem, then it's going to lead me to the wrong solution and I'm going to be on a completely different island. All right, what about parents? Because this actually, I think, matters in the way that we teach our kids. See, we can see the symptoms in our lives. Our children are going crazy. Or maybe they're just not doing exactly what we want them to. Or, or maybe they're having trouble in their endeavors. And if we misdiagnose the problem and we give a false solution, then what we can give is to say, well, listen, what we really need is just better performance. And so let's get our kids to perform better. Let's get them to modify their behavior. Let's get them to just kind of do better and try harder. And if they do, then maybe they will end up with this solution that makes them higher performing kids. But of course, just like our own hearts, our children's hearts are broken. And what they need most desperately in life is not more performance. They need the gospel. So we as parents actually have to be teaching and living out and showing them what it means to be broken and forgiven. We have to be living out what it means to repent and turn to Jesus in faith. We have to be living out and teaching them what it means to cling only to the Lord for our hope. Because if we don't, we're going to end up with a solution based on the symptom rather than the real problem. All right, final example, a political one. And this really can be applied, I think, to any kind of political situation. I'm going to pick on one in specific. It is the new phenomenon in our, in our country uh, called Christian nationalism. Maybe you've heard about this, maybe you haven't, maybe you've even seen kind of some of the evidences of it. But Christian nationalism really is simply the fusing together of the Christian identity and the American identity. It is to say that being an American and a Christian are part and parcel to one another. And so we've kind of fused this idea that, that God has chosen this country specifically for particular purposes, and he's blessed it and even kind of covenantally bound himself to it. That's the idea of Christian nationalism. In fact, uh, in a recent poll, 68% of born-again white Protestants said that they thought the founding documents of the United States were divinely inspired. 68% of white born-again Protestants thought the founding documents of the United States were inspired by God. So do you hear the fusing together of that idea? That God, just like he inspired scripture, has inspired the founding of a particular country. So here's the thing. If we're Christians in America, we see the symptoms all over. We look around at our world, at our country, and we see, by and large, there seem to be a, a, a lot of ways that our culture has let go of Christian values. We, we see in a lot of ways that there is a movement away from uh, Christian institutions. We see in a lot of ways that there is a movement away from the ideals presented in the Bible and the things that are given, you know, that, that God's law provides for. And that we as a country and a culture have moved progressively away from that. And we look around and we see those symptoms. And we see that there are millions of unborn babies that die every year. 
we see that there are, uh, there are people exerting their power over those with less power. We see that, there are, that there's a, a loosening in the bonds of marriage and even the declaration, declaration about what marriage is. And so we see so oftentimes those symptoms. But here's the thing. This is really important. If we build a solution around the, sim- the system, the symptoms, we will end up with the wrong solution. Because we will build a social or cultural or political system that we hope is going to change all of those things to get us back to a place that we thought our world was in a, in a good spot. And we will do so at any cost. And we will find the people that we want to be in power that are going to get us back to that place we want to as quickly as we can, and we will sacrifice so many things in order to do so. But to find that solution is actually to find a solution not to a problem but a symptom. Because the problem, again, is not that we are acting the wrong way. That's a symptom. The problem is that we are broken inside. And what we need is Jesus to fix it. Because friends, I am not the way, the truth, and the life. You as a parent are not the way, the truth, and the life. An ideology, whatever that ideology is, is not the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has actually called us to be members of a kingdom that will last forever. To be members of a kingdom that will actually grow in righteousness and justice. He has called us to be members of the new Jerusalem, which is not the United States. It is the church. It is the kingdom that we belong to as Christians with a king who is good and right and true. So how do we respond to the way, the truth, and the life? Well, really, Jesus lays it out here at the end of this passage. Listen to verse 12 again, and we'll close with this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to be with the Father. That's an astounding statement from Jesus. And I think we can misinterpret that to think that individual Christians will do greater miracles than Jesus. Or individual Christians should be able to do things like raise the dead. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think what he's talking about is that the church is called to carry on this mission of proclaiming this good news. And you know what? The church's reach and scope over time and across geographic boundaries and across political boundaries has been wider and greater and deeper even than the proclamation of Jesus himself. And that is our job, to be members of this kingdom where we get to proclaim to our own hearts the real problem and the real solution. We get to proclaim to our families What is the real problem and the real solution? We get to proclaim together as a kingdom to our neighbors what is the problem and what is the solution because it is the way, the truth, and the life that is our hope. That is where we get to hang our hat. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, it's you and you alone 
where we find our hope. We don't find it in our activity. We don't find it in our ability. We don't find it in the authority that we've been given. We don't find it in positions of power. We don't find it in political leaders. We don't find it in cultural systems. We don't find it, Lord, in ideologies. We find it in you. So, Lord, will you rid our hearts of any ways that we are misdiagnosing the real problem and providing a false answer? Will you rid our hearts of any ways that we are adding to you? Will you rid our hearts, Lord, of any belief that there is another way, another truth, and another life? And will you show us what it means to cling more deeply to you in all that we do? We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.